Welcome to Improving Intimacy, a podcast to help single and married Latter-day Saints strengthen their family connections and marriages. Daniel A. Burgess is the host of Improving Intimacy. Daniel's a marriage and family therapist, father, husband, and author. Here's Daniel on this episode of Improving Intimacy. Today on Improving Intimacy, I am not Daniel A. Burgess. I am the author of, and it was very good, A Latter-day Saints Guide to Lovemaking. Daniel will be the one that I interview. Turn the tables on Daniel today on Improving Intimacy. Daniel, welcome to your own show. Thank you. What a pleasure. Daniel, I'm going to start with a very big question. Did you feel you were called by God to do what you're doing right now? Uh, it is a very big question. Um, and really, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I, I think I'm doing my best every day to find my calling in life and listening to the Lord and where he wants me to go. Um, and maybe the visual I can give here. Uh, so I don't feel like an angel has come down and told me, this is your direction, Daniel. Um, but I remember my mission president and he taught me a very important lesson. Uh, I, I went into his office one day and I saw him organizing the elders and sisters on his big magnetic board. And, uh, he had pictures of everyone and some descriptions with that, that picture and he started to move things around like they were puzzle pieces. And I was, I was asking him what, what was he doing? It was clear he was preparing for transfers. Um, and he says, this is what I do every time I do uh, mission transfers is I get up to the board and I get familiar with these people, uh, with the missionaries. And um, I says, do, do you pray over each one? He says, I've already prayed about this. And I get up to the board and I start working this. I start putting things together as well as I know, and I let the Lord guide me in that. And that was a principle to me. He gave some examples of how, when he would do that, so often there would be a couple of missionaries left off to the side, like he didn't know where to put them. And that was an indicator of, to him and how the Lord spoke to him on where or that those particular missionaries needed uh uh, additional focus or something they, he needed to pray over those particular missionaries uh, extra carefully. And that's kind of how I viewed my life. I don't know if I've ever had this, Daniel, this is what you're going to do in your life. I've stayed very close to my patriarchal blessing. I absolutely love my blessing. I think it was very unique to me. Uh, I had some very special experiences around getting my patriarchal blessing. Uh, in fact, I, I had to get it three times. Uh, the first two times the recorder didn't work. And um, that was a, a testimony to me as each time I came back. Now, I don't have a photographic memory, but there were key elements on what was said and how it was said um, that uh, I don't think could be created again and again after uh, giving a patriarchal blessing a certain way, but that stuck with me. And in each blessing, I don't recall any variation from uh, the words that were given in the original one uh, and the, the stake patriarch was so embarrassed. He felt like, Oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on. Uh, the recorder just, it isn't where it is back when we had tape recorders and, and I don't know what was happening on his end, but we finally, he had like three recorders out the, the next time or the last time. And it finally worked. Um, but there's particular things in my patriarchal blessing that I feel like the Lord has made clear to me and hasn't happened. I'm trying to figure those things out, but nothing that's ever said, Daniel, this is where you're going to go. 
Uh, and most often I felt very alone in that journey. Uh, and I've taken comfort in, and by no means am I President Hinckley, but President Hinckley used to say I was alone at the top. And, and um, I've often felt alone when I'm pursuing the Lord. Uh, people either don't understand where I'm going with it or uh, uh, I just wonder where what I'm doing with it. And, and that's felt alone in my journey at times. Uh, so I, it's, it's a big question. One, I've constantly revisited Heavenly Father. Is this where, what I should be doing? Um, I knew I wanted to be a therapist as young as 13. I found my brother's college textbook on psychology. And I was reading through it. I, I didn't put it down. I was so fascinated that there was even a profession out there that studied people because I love to people watch. And so that element I knew has always been in me is I, I love people. I love to make sense of human interactions. Um, and so I always wanted to pursue that route. Uh, and so I eventually, I took a very long path to get there, but that is one thing about my life that I felt like Heavenly Father wanted me to pursue and I didn't know how to get there. Um, it definitely was not a traditional path. Um, but specifically what I'm doing with, with uh, sex therapy and, um, and the kind of work that I, I do is definitely not a place I thought I would ever be doing, uh, ever be working. And um, along the path, I think the Lord has made it clear to me that this is where he wants me. So it's been more of a confirmation as opposed to uh a calling. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but I've pursued what has been a passion of mine and the Lord has confirmed it along the way. And what drew you to talking about or helping essentially Latter-day Saints? I, I think that that's a large part of your clientele. At least that's how I know you, um, not through my own therapy, but through the interactions that we've had among Latter-day Saints, sexuality, therapy as a kind of um, joint uh, uh, a nexus. Is that, is that what, is that your main thing that you do? No, I actually, I, I came into the field. I, so I always had this dream of being like an EFY counselor or speaker. I always was fascinated with like your John, by the ways, uh, and, and other, uh, Brad Wilcox and so forth. And I always thought I'd be working with using my education and experience with, with psychology in, and working with youth. And that's where I actually started pursuing. I started working with uh, teenagers, both LDS and non LDS and um, getting into the school system. And it was a real surprise to me as much as I loved working with youth, it didn't feel right. Um, and that was, that was a confusing thing to me. It drained me. Uh, you're like saying, of course you're working with teenagers, but it, you know, when you, you're passionate about something, uh, I would figure there'd be some sort of like, oh, this is this is where I should be, even though it's really hard. Um, and I, I started to reflect on that and talk to the Lord about it and saying, where am I supposed to go with this? I felt like, oh, my goodness, I spent all this time and money into pursuing a career that I don't like. And at that time, I was actually working with uh, another therapist and he was running uh, Sons of Helaman, uh program out of his office. And that was for those who don't know. It's for uh, teenagers uh, that are struggling with, with sexual behaviors. And I started to watch them. And so I, I was involved with that as much as I could. And uh, I also started working with adult clients, single clients, LDS clients. And there was a theme here. So there was two themes that I started to notice immediately. 
and that I was drawn to. Uh, I never thought I'd be pursuing anything specifically sex related in, in therapy. Um, but there was this theme. So there was this overarching theme of there was this poor understanding of what sexually healthy behavior is within our, our culture. And I don't think it's limited to our LDS culture, but, um, I definitely sell saw it prevalent within a lot of the issues that came into the office. When couples come in, they say they have communication issues. Very rarely did I, I find that there was actually a communication issue. Um, I often laugh. My wife's a grammarian. She's very well-spoken. I'm a marriage and family therapist, although I don't always say the right things. I know how to communicate. Um, and we still say dumb things to each other. And, I, and so I started bringing this idea to the, the room of, Yes, we could always improve our communication, but what's really happening here? And as I started to dig deeper, there was a lot of things that were not being said, and it often revolved around the bedroom uh, or sex related. And um, I also started to notice how the youth were responding in these certain programs that were being run. They kept reverting back to bad or unhealthy or self-destructive behaviors. The program wasn't actually working for them. And I, I was sitting there thinking, okay, I, I kind of maybe the bit, so I have a business background too. And so I'm, I'm thinking, how do we improve this process? What's missing? I, I'm not going to accept that people are going to just have to repeat unhealthy behavior for the rest of their life. And um, if something's not working, we got to reevaluate it, take it apart, see what's working, take what's working and, and find something else to replace this stuff that isn't working. And often I would hear people say, well, this is, is a result of, of addiction or, uh, or, you know, the social media and so forth, whether it was in, sorry, I know I'm bouncing around here, a lot of, a lot of different thoughts, but, but I saw this commonality between the teenager, the youth and, and also adults. And how they address sexuality, usually it was that they didn't address sexuality and I saw a need. And that part of me came out as I observed this behavior. I was like, this is an area that's not well addressed. I started researching it and diving deeper into it and I got excited about it. It was making sense to me. I was actually at a point where I was struggling why it didn't make sense to other people. And I think that was the biggest hurdle I had. Um, but it fascinated me. It started to feel like part of my part of the first question. This was the path. It was difficult. Uh, it didn't make sense for a lot of people, but it started to make sense to me. And I felt like I was mentioning earlier, like that was my my calling or Heavenly Father confirming this was the path for me. Um, and so I pursued it. When you talk about a confirmation of this is the path for you, are you talking about internal? It feels right. Are you talking about, I have patients that seem to be doing better, or are you talking about externally people that see what you're doing are giving you compliments? And I'm, uh, I'm focusing a little bit on the last one because I think that you possibly did not get so many compliments. Uh, in fact, maybe some opposition. So I'm, I'm curious which of those three, all of them, none of them was what you perceived as a confirmation that you were on the right path. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm definitely a person who feels a lot, um, but I also keep it in check. Uh, and I think that's important for me because I am definitely a feeling type of person. Um, so at the beginning, I didn't I wasn't in a position to see a lot of change with with the youth. I, I observed some things that um, I didn't think were helpful and often 
maybe not effective for the youth in these programs to help them overcome their struggles. Um, and so I didn't get to see any successes there. I would often talk to uh, the other therapists and, and suggest different ways, but I wasn't in a position to implement those changes. Uh, and so I definitely didn't see, and I saw, I, I ran up against uh, kind of a brick wall with that experience. But as I started working with adults and my own clients, I did. And that's what drove me. I saw change. Um, I, I, I've, I've done an interview uh, in the past with uh, Unscripted Saints and talked about one of my first clients. Um, and I was very candid with this client. She was coming in. Uh, she was struggling with pornography and masturbation. And she had tried everything. And I was very upfront with her. I says, I don't have much experience here. I know you're coming to me as a, as a fellow LDS member. Uh, and I want to respect that. And she says, I've done ARP. I've done 12 steps. I've, I've done all these things. And so I just need somebody who understands my faith and let's try whatever you have. And so that opened up the avenue. She was at a place where she didn't feel like she was starting to question her faith. And I think in, in, I think Heavenly Father prepared me for that opportunity. Um, and it's interesting as I look back on it more now and, and even more so in the context of your question, uh, I kind of see this as that board that my mission president used to put up there. The Lord had kind of arranged my life in a way that allowed me to be in a position to help this individual. And she reached out to me um, at a very uh, particular time. Uh, she would not have... Uh, kind of hard to describe if she had not contacted me at the time she did, there's, there's a likelihood we would have never met. And, um, I could only say that was providential, right? I don't, I mean, coincidence, providential, whatever. Um, I think the Lord led us together and gave us both an opportunity to discover something else that worked. And our measurement for success was in this case, uh, is she stronger in her faith? Is she more healthy? Is she more happy? And so she was willing. She was like, look at nothing I've done before has worked. I've I'm, I'm actively working at the temple. I'm love my faith, but I don't know where God is in all this. And I don't know what to do and I don't know what else. And it keeps occurring. And so we got to, um, explore and, and try to work through those things. And, as I started implementing and suggesting things that I had been thinking about and working out and studying, um, she embraced them and we began to see immediate results. Uh, there were times that internally I was definitely nervous because I was like, this is so different from everything else. I didn't feel they were wrong, but the question I had was how does this work into the framework of our faith? And I was very mindful of that, but I couldn't deny the results that were happening. And, um, that, that person was coming closer to Christ. That person was coming closer to themselves. And so I definitely felt like I was on the path that heavenly father wanted me to, but beyond my own feelings, I was seeing results. And that was a huge indicator to me, um, that, that one particular client and it set up the framework, the stage for me to continue to, to, um, develop these ideas and, to help other people. And since then I've seen a repeat of even with people who've been in, in addiction recovery programs for sexual behaviors for a decade or more with severe, uh, behavioral problems. Um, 
make progress like they've never made before and maintain that progress. And so whenever I feel like people are uh, questioning my approach or whatever, I go back to the results and those are what counts. Those people are happier. They're closer to Christ and they're thriving in the gospel that they love. They don't feel like they have to leave. What would you say your method is? You've talked about results. What are you actually doing that's different? Maybe different from what other therapists might do, different from what other therapists who serve a Latter-day Saint or faith-based community do, or different from what, um, what, a, what a bishop might do. Yeah. I, I, I frame it sometimes. I don't, I don't know if I have a particular way of identifying the difference, but the way I like to sometimes refer to it is reclaiming your agency. Um, when we talk about addiction and we talk about, um, out of control behavior, it's, it's, I, I realize that I'm going to be very careful here. I, I'm not suggesting we ever lose our agency. We, we, that's as, as sons and daughters of heavenly father, we, that's our gift. We have agency to choose, but there is this element that we surrender our own choice. And I think when a lot of people, a lot of Latter-day Saints hear that they're addicted, I think for some, it's a comfort. They figure out what's going on in their life. Um, but I think for the majority of, of people who struggle with particularly what we're talking about here is, is I'm not talking about substance addiction here. I'm just talking behavioral with, uh, with sexual behaviors or pornography um, that once they identify as, as addicts of this behavior, they have lost choice in the matter or it's become a sheer willpower experience. And so I reframe this in that. Uh, and a lot of people are really surprised when we implement ways that they can choose within their struggle. Um, they realize they have a lot more power over what they had referred to as their addiction before. Uh, and so I say, this is, this is evidence that you're reclaiming your, your agency, your ability to choose how and when you engage in this behavior and how it affects you. Um, whereas the old model, uh, the traditional model of addiction is you're addicted and that's just going to happen and you just got to fight it and replace it. I think people have a lot more power than that. And we give way too much power to those things that we're, we think we're addicted to. Do you treat masturbation now, or do you consider masturbation not to be something that you would want to treat at all at this point? Do I treat masturbation? Um, well, it's, it's usually, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think here. Um, I, I think maybe once, maybe twice I've had somebody come in and say, I I'm, I'm struggling with masturbation. It's usually always, uh, uh, pornography. Uh, I don't really have people who are coming in saying, I, you know, I, I have a masturbation issue. I, I want help with it. Um, but I guess indirectly, yes, I treat it. Um, but again, I, I, I do it in the context of their sexual health, understanding their, uh, sexual drive or desires and understanding their body as opposed to suppressing, rejecting, or denying that urge. Uh, I teach a concept of self-mastery and there's a confusing principle or concept around self-mastery within, within, uh, the culture of our faith. And whenever people hear self-mastery, they hear bridal, but really not bridal, but 
restrict um, not actually learning and understanding your body. So when somebody does come in or when the topic of masturbation comes up, uh, we first explore their sexual health in the context of that behavior um, or the behavior in the context of their sexual health rather. Uh, and so I, I guess I'm indirectly answer that question. Yes, I treat it, but it, usually it's not the main focus. So I've understood a little bit uh, of what you do. You're not using it as an addiction model, an addiction model where you don't have agency anymore. You've essentially given it up to the addiction and therefore it's hard to figure out what to do from that point. I get that. You've replaced this with a self-mastery model, but I'm not sure if they haven't already talked to you that a listener would know what this means. What does this actually mean? If I were to walk in and say, Daniel, I have a problem with pornography. I've used it for 12 years and I don't know what to do. And the pornography I use is very disturbing and I use it a lot. What's next? Can you walk me through the, yeah, the process? Uh, well, it, there's quite a few, quite a, quite a lot that goes on there. First of all, it, you know, uh, if you're somebody coming in, we explore uh, it, you know, come in and say, you have this huge pornography problem. So let me simplify it. What, what I will do essentially is understand the severity of that behavior. I, um, you use the word a lot, but I have a lot of people who come in and say, I'm addicted to it. I am looking at pornography a lot or all the time. And that's the first thing I get clarification on. I have them specifically define what a lot means to them. And I've gotten a range of answers from, I, I kid you not, there's no exaggeration here. It's, you know, 10 minutes a month to an hour a day or in, in, in some cases hours per day. And so there's this tendency to, um, really skew our perspective of, and I think that's part of the approach, uh, part of what I offer here is clarification. So many addiction programs, so many therapists. So that's the first difference you're going to notice is we're actually going to talk what severity is and how big of a problem this is. A lot of treatments evolve around. You say you're addicted. You say you have a problem. There's no exploration of how often and how long these behaviors are engaged in. So if somebody's using pornography or masturbating, you know, five hours a day, 10 times a day. Um, and the one person who's, who's looking at pornography for 10 minutes a month, they're all lumped in the same type of treatment. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. That's like <laughs> you're treating a stage four cancer patient, the same as somebody who has a benign tumor. Um, not to over exaggerate or, or to be silly about that, but it's, it's, it, it, I was noting that, uh, noticing that inconsistency in treatment. So that's the first thing we do is we understand just how bad it is. And that will actually dictate how the treatment proceeds. Uh, in addition to understanding what the rest of their mental health situation is. And I think that's another part here. I'm going to interject is uh, in those cases where the behavior is significant. And I'm going to say significant in this case is maybe daily usage um, for an hour or more a day or a few times a week for, for an hour or more at a time. Um, in almost every situation, there's underlining issues that have nothing that are not um, addiction related. Uh, for example, major depression that always existed with this person. And there's a mistake that a lot of uh, treatment approaches make is they focus more on the addiction 
and never even manage or address the underlining issues. And so we understand we take that in the context. So again, one understanding severity and frequency and duration, uh, and then what other underlining issues root causes, um, are coming up. Pornography usage is, uh, is, is so far I've seen in any person who's come in is a symptom, not the problem. And then what we do is what I do is, is, uh, uh, implement a strategy that allows them to reclaim their agency and their power of choice. So for example, let's say somebody who's using pornography five hours a week, let's just make up a number five hours a week. And that's pretty consistent. That's their average. Um, I'll even have them track for three to six weeks. What is their behavior? And that's always problematic for, for clients because they get overwhelmed. It's like, I'm here to stop the behavior. Are you giving me permission to actually do it? And, and, and even record it. I says, no, what I'm telling you to do is to actually record your behavior. I want to see just how bad this is. Um, what is actually happening? I don't know any other therapist who, who actually does that. And I'm not trying to soapbox or, or, or say I'm better than anybody, but that's a critical, I mean, we, we talk about how do we measure success? If, if your definition of, of success is to never sin again, you're going to fail. And, uh, what we need to do here is, is understand magnitude and you're coming in here and you're telling me that you're using five hours a week. And after they track, often we find out it's much less, they just feel it's much longer. And there they have immediate success. They start to realize, oh my goodness, I'm actually doing better than I thought. I thought I was doing a lot worse. And that immediately creates this excitement, um, and motivation that they had lost previously. Uh, because in their mind, the moment they touch pornography, they're at ground zero. They've, they've, they have to start all over, but that's, that's not helpful. I've never seen that as a, as a helpful approach. That's a very scary place to be in. And that anxiety feeds the problem. So I will literally tell them, track it. Let's find out. Okay. You're an average of five hours a, a week. Your goal now from here on out is to do four hours. What? <laughs> yes. I want to see if you can do it. And there's often a lot of confusion around that. They're, they're like, I, are you telling me to look at pornography? I'm no, I'm telling you to look at less pornography. Um, but I want you to actually choose when you do it and how long you do it and not go over that duration. What? <laughs> it's, it's a very scary. They've never had anybody tell them that or, to even, I, I guess, I don't know if I'm giving them permission because along the way I'm, especially for LDS clients, anybody who's faith-based who comes in and sees me, I, I, I never tell them to do this alone. Uh, you do this with the Lord. You discover and understand your own sexuality and you set your own goals. Too often people are making the same mistake over and over and they're just taking somebody else's goal. And whether that's, you know, complete sobriety or, no, not looking at porn for, for three weeks because their bishop told them not to. Um, that's not becoming their choice. And that's not a, a decision between them and the Lord. And so there isn't a lot of empowerment there. For some people, I get it. They want to feel accountable to a bishop and it works for them. Um, but I encourage everyone to create their own goals. What is doable? Uh, and so people will come back sometimes and they'll say, so I, I often get a, a few experiences here where they'll come back and they'll say, wow, it was really awkward to, to record it. I just didn't do it. I go, that's interesting. You made a choice. 
look at that. And you stayed away from the porn. It's not as impulsive as we once thought. You actually made a choice and it felt weird. And that was your experience. Some will come back and they'll say, like I said earlier, wow, it's a lot better than I thought it was. Or, ooh, it's actually a lot worse than I thought. And even in those cases, we still have a way to measure success. We say, great, now we know. Now we know what's really happening. We really know how severe it is. So let's take that data and move forward. Let's reduce the usage. Uh, in other ways, we use this. I, you know, I'll ask a very difficult question and every, every person responds the same. I, I ask, how do you, okay, you're looking at pornography, whether it's 30 minutes a month or five, you know, five hours a week. How do you end? I, I already know the answer. Uh, you probably already know the answer. Uh, I, I orgasm. Great. That's, that's exactly right. That's how you get away from, that's how you stop with the pornography. Why don't you orgasm at the beginning? What? Wait, why you're telling me to masturbate? No, you're already masturbating. Let's just use it as a tool to avoid the pornography. You want to disentangle the unhealthy sexual part of this experience with your actual physical arousal, because that's been the problem. So we start to focus on, I bring in this next stage or, or phase of focusing on desired outcomes too much of the addiction model focuses on what you're going to stop. That really isn't a desired outcome because once you stopped, where do you go to now? What does life look like? Too many people think once you get rid of the pornography, life is going to be great. You're going to feel closer to God, but nowhere in that process did you learn actually how to build connections or create your own desire. If, if you're married, how do you, how do you now, um, foster a more healthy connection and intimate relationship with your spouse. You have fought so much to resist pornography. You're actually not building up the thing that's important, that desired outcome. And so we start to incorporate um, what it means to have a healthy sexuality and how we foster the positive feelings. Um, and there's been amazing results occur with that. Uh, you know, some people will say, well, I can't orgasm without the porn. Well, there you go. You just revealed something to me and to yourself that I think is critical. You've never learned to create your own desire. You've always been dependent on another source to create that desire. Now that's not entirely wrong. You know, we could look at our, our spouse and say, wow, I'm, I'm aroused by her. She, she creates just looking at her creates desire. And that could be a visual experience and that's important, but you're now shifting it from this porn experience to my relationship or learning how to create this desire in myself without the need of this particular source. And so we go through this process of assessment, uh, defining severity, uh, understanding root causes and creating trackable, solid, measurements of success. Um, and we want to map that out over a duration of time. Uh, even though they're working on this, I still have people who are, who get good at, um, measurement and embracing this idea who may go back to the porn for a brief duration. And it's way less than anything they've, they've used before. And they feel like they're at square one. I'm like, where does that feeling come from? Why do you feel 
Like, you know, you went from five hours a, a week to 30 minutes a month. What about that experience is causing this huge despair in your life? Why aren't you celebrating? You're no longer using well, because I can't ever completely get it out of my life. Well, we're surrounded by sexual imagery. So let's take it to the next step. How do we manage that? And what is that experience like? And, uh, you, you know, this is there isn't necessarily a particular process to all this because it comes up for, at different points for different people. Um, but realizing how much power we give sexual imagery, uh, we look at this. It's interesting. I hope I'm answering your question. I, I, this is a very passionate topic of mine. I, I noticed one of the things I noticed at the beginning was how women respond to pornography and how men respond to pornography. And often women come in and she's like, yeah, I I've looked at pornography, but whatever, I don't, you know, five minutes and uh, I, I don't care for it, whatever. A man will come in and say, I looked at it for five minutes too. And they think they're going to hell. What I'm experiencing here, what, what they're experiencing is the man is giving it so much more power than it deserves. They're handing over their agency, their definition of what their worthiness is. Why is it this female can look at it for five minutes and say, whatever, I don't care. It's nothing. Um, and they're not, and not in a dismissive, like, or minimizing way, but not in a way that it's giving it more power than it should have. They're like, mm, it's not what I want in my life. And then they move on. Whereas a man will carry that burden. Um, like it's like, it's the weight of the world. Uh, and so there's that element in it too. Is this answering your question? Yeah, it is. And uh, let me let me offer up a metaphor and tell me whether or not the metaphor captures what you're you're trying to express or get to. The the metaphor is riding a bike and an addiction model would have you focus on the fact that you fall and you're trying never to fall. And there might be two ways never to fall. One is to be a perfect bike rider and the other one is never to ride the bike again. And an addiction model might push towards never riding a bike again. And your model is more, well, yeah, you fall. That's part of riding a bike and you need to learn to ride the bike. Have I captured it? I, I think that's a great analogy. I think that's, yes, I don't blame so many people who feel like they're failing because in essence, they're being taught. Uh, that's what they're being focused on. You fell. Don't fall again. You fell. Stop falling. You got to stop falling. Don't get on that bike unless you know you won't fall. And that's not helpful. I, I love that analogy. Thank you. Yes. Very well summed up. There have been several, I'd say, developments in how the the formal church uh, has dealt with or refers to both pornography and sexuality over this year and in the last couple of years. I'm thinking of uh, Brother Oaks, Elder Oaks gave a talk on levels of pornography use. And then we have a series of videos that came out recently that have, um, I'd say, normalized the idea that we are sexual beings um, and have and we're not we haven't chosen to have uh, sexual feelings or, or thoughts or wants or desires. That's natural. That's what's given by God and is gift from God. And so it's our it's our goal and our our task to learn how to manage that, deal with it, live within it. It's not that the feelings themselves are are wrong. I just want to get your kind of reaction to the I guess I'd say recent developments and I possibly also would suggest 
the what seems to be a purging of the word masturbation from one after another text in the uh, kind of official canon. Yes, I, I love that you're asking about this. Um, I love it. I can't emphasize it enough. And I know when Elder Oaks, that, that apostle doesn't seem to be able to win any crowds over. <laughs> he talk about uh, a person who, who speaks uh, whatever he thinks is important and come what may. Uh, he, he did not win over a lot of um, anti-porn advocates when he came out with his conquering pornography article. Uh, and he spoke out about it and says there's different severities. In fact, I have a, a response from a, a prominent um, LDS um, anti-porn uh, individual who wrote him a letter and uh, I, I guess chastising him and told the, the apostle of the Lord that he was not taking this, serious, uh, this issue serious. I think he's actually taking it very serious. And I think his response was in line uh, with, with a better health model, uh, and that not all usage is an addiction uh, or a compulsion, uh, and that we need to treat it accordingly. Uh, and, and he even emphasized in that, that, uh, what is it? Um, uh, 2000, what was it? 2000, uh, October, 2015, I think article in the enzyme. I might be wrong in that. I'll put it correctly in the blog post. Um, but he said there's there's potential danger. He even emphasizes it in treating it too harshly or too severely. And that goes to um, and that was such a relief when that article came out, because that was right after I started to implement this. I knew it was working. I knew it was right. And that was such a comfort to read of, hey, the brethren are actually recognizing this, too. And yes. They are removing, they have been for over 20 years now, for nearly 20 years now, removing the word masturbation. And within the church handbook, uh, it even counsels that uh, church discipline is not necessary for, for these behaviors. I think there's, a, there's an important, um, I think that's an important emphasis. And I, I think the church culture is slow to catch up. Um, and I think there's also still a fear to say anything in addition to that. This isn't new, though. This is not new. Um, back in the early 1920s, uh, we had a, an amazing Relief Society president of the church, Amy uh, Brown Lyman, and she established this at that time. Uh, she even put into the Relief Society magazine of that time a article in not over responding to these things in our responses as parents to sexual behaviors. And, you know, she specifically included two case studies in, in the release society magazine about how mothers, um, um, lectured their, their, their daughters on, on the dangers of, of, of masturbation and how that lecturing or contemning, uh, increased depression and society, uh, suicidal, uh, uh, ideation. And so these are not new. Uh, I think during the fifties, we saw a huge change and, and that's the way the church, um, um, well, it was the beginning of the family services, uh, Amy, sister Lyman had established what we know today as the family, uh, services. And so, um, the church was establishing this, this approach. Uh, but when the fifties and sixties came, there was a very different mentality. I think there was a lot of fear around sexuality with the sexual revolution. 
with Kinsey's work being released, uh, Alfred Kinsey. And I don't know if we knew how to respond to that. And I, I don't get down on the leaders. I don't blame them, but I think they were trying to respond to an era of what felt like out of control behavior. Um, and I think they took the action that they felt was best at the time. Um, but uh, I think over, you know, since then they, since maybe the 80, early eighties, mid eighties, they're, they're seeing that maybe a different approach will be more important to addressing uh, sexual health. And I think that's what we're now seeing is kind of a, uh, or coming back to that 19, oddly enough, we're coming back to what sister uh, Lyman was establishing in the early twenties, mid twenties, um, which is exciting uh, in, in all the right ways, but we're also incorporating hopefully newer, better understandings uh, of the science around sexual health. If I came to you as a, an interested church leader and wanted to know what should I do differently, that uh, I, I hope that gives you permission of not feeling that you're lecturing actual church leaders. <laughs> but if I did come, what would you tell me? It's a great question. I do. I have bishops who call me up and uh, will will ask for counsel on that. And I always love that they do. I, you know, I that's never a part of my uh, charging service. Any bishop calls up, I'm happy to give my time, and um, and I always make it clear at the beginning. You know, I'm, I'll provide you with whatever insight I have, but clearly this is this is important for you to discern with the spirit on how you approach it. And I usually start off, one of the things I will say is one, understand the severity. I'll put it in the context of President Oaks' Enzyme article. Understand the severity. When somebody comes into your office, um, recognize one, usually there's, this is a symptomatic behavior. Something else is going on. Um, create hope in this individual's life. Try not to focus too much on the behavior. Um, when somebody's coming in, you know, there, and there's a spectrum, right? There's youth and adults especially when youth come in, um, uh, foster hope and also understand if this is something that's beyond your understanding. I think that's so important. Um, you know, as bishops and leaders, we're already trained. They're already trained to, uh, you know, if it's a financial issue, let's get you help with somebody in the ward who has that expertise. Same thing here, all the more so with this, if you feel like this is beyond your understanding, refer it out. Let's get somebody out. Uh, the other thing I will recommend is what can you do to support this individual? And whether it's a youth or an adult, one of the first things I say, have them take the sacrament and send them to the temple. Period. All too often, the first thing that bishops do is remove blessings. This is a critical time. An individual is coming to you because they want help. They need clarity in their mind. When you remove that blessing, it's reinforcing this negative experience. This is the time, especially if they're coming to you out of their free will, they're seeking repentance. That's an indicator that they love the Lord, that they want to do it right. Tell them, make it a point. I want you to partake of the sacrament this week, or I want you to go to the temple. And what I want you to think about is the divine gift of sexuality and how does the lord see that in you you've just changed the conversation 
from focusing and giving the pornography too much power to empowering the Lord in their life. I have not yet seen, and I'm very careful to say this because I'm not one who makes absolute statements, or at least I try not to intentionally. Um, I've not yet seen a situation where a leadership removes those blessings and that individual improves. And what I mean by improve is sustainable improvement. Yes, they may improve for the three weeks or whatever duration you give them to regain that blessing. But what are they doing to create sustainability? Are they going to have to quote unquote sin again to be remotivated to get that blessing again? No, let's create not an environment of fear of losing blessings, but an environment of loving your blessings and send them to the temple. And I have seen in nearly every case where a bishop does that, there is a complete paradigm shift. Usually for adults who've, who weren't, I, I will say, for adults who have had a history of this where it's been treated in the old way, removing blessings, um, even when they're told to go to the temple, sometimes they won't because they don't feel like they can. And so there's this guilt factor that prevents them from actually seeking the blessing. That's evidence to me. You know, a lot of people will say, well, that's because they were sinning. So they feel guilty. Well, I think a lot of this is we are trained to feel guilty and the guilt is a form of fear to scare us away from that behavior. But all that feeds into our sexuality and adults are discovering that, especially those who have struggled with pornography or these issues uh, prior to marriage, that now they are supposedly okay to elicit these feelings in marriage. But guess what goes along with that? There's this Pavlovian experience where they have uh, the guilt that comes along with, with intimacy. It, oh my goodness. We're starting to see the results of this addiction model of this approach of uh, you, you've got something wrong with you. This is a huge sin and you need to be scared out of this. Now they struggle to function within their marriage. They can't be open about it. Um, it becomes a very closed door experience or one that's very pathologized and that there's something wrong with them and a lot of shame around it as opposed to being able to open up and, oh my goodness, I know my sexual desire now and I know how to have it because the bishop, because my support systems taught me how to love and to honor my divine sexuality. I know how to carry this into marriage now. So it's a long answer to your question. What I, what I, try to encourage leadership to understand. Um, but it really is that concept shift. That's really hard for, I think people who are used to the traditional approach. Um, but I think a lot of bishops who have been in the role for more than a year or two are recognizing that they're recognizing it's usually new bishops who get into the role and they're gun ho They're you know, they're the ones referring these traditional books out to the members, you know, do more scripture prayer, uh, do more scripture prayer, do more scriptures, do more prayer, read this book, uh, go to all these meetings because what else are they going to do? They're not familiar with anything else, but what they're doing is, is not giving, they're not giving that individual an opportunity to actually learn from the Lord. They're using, it, it just reminded me in primary, my wife would get really frustrated when primary presidents or teachers would say, if you're not quiet, we're all going to read the scriptures. Oh my goodness. That's exactly what we're doing with, with uh, people with sexual health issues. 
is we're using the gospel or removing the gospel when they haven't even learned how to appreciate their own sexual self or their own desires. And so that whole concept is really difficult to convey to, you know, give a bishop, you know, uh, a three to five step plan for, for an individual because they don't have their head wrapped around it. Uh, new bishops usually continue to uh, engage in that traditional behavior. Whereas, you know, I see more uh, seasoned bishops are like, it's not working. I have the same person in the office week after week. This is tangible, Daniel. This measurement for success uh, is huge. And it keeps bishops from feeling like they have to explore it in details too, which some unfortunately do. Uh, that's really a therapist role. Um, how often? But now I can have people, uh, ward members go in and say, I'm actually succeeding because I've reduced my usage. And now the bishop can hear that success um, and encourage it and further, you know, create that sustainability. So that's generally my message to bishops. It's not a, it's not a quick answer, but uh, uh, it's important that they understand that difference. That's wonderful, Daniel. And we've, we've talked today about really how you, you came to this, this place of focusing on sexuality and helping, uh, helping patients through a, a perceived addiction that maybe isn't an addiction or is better looked at through a sexual mastery model. You've explained the model that, that, uh, you use and given the advice that you would give if I were a bishop calling you up and asking you what I might want to do in this situation. It's given, given me a lot to, to talk about and to think about. And I think uh, the people uh, listening will have now their own thoughts on, on how this might be applied in their own lives, perhaps in those that they also, also mentor. I have a, I have a personal question and maybe sure. uh, one that I don't even know who else I could ask this to or ask this of. So I'm anonymous because my wife doesn't want people at church knowing that I have said or written explicit things about sexuality too intrusive seems too much like they have an, a view on our bedroom, uh, than, <laughs> than anything else. You deal with that all the time. What's it like and how do you deal with it? That's a, um, a great question. I, and I, I'm going to struggle to answer this because I respect where, you know, your wife or others in a similar situation are at. I, this is a very sensitive topic. And, you know, I, I, I've often gone to my brother's house, who's a firefighter paramedic and, um, his wife is a, uh, nurse practitioner. And so their dinner table conversations are sometimes, um, a little overwhelming and it's kind of the nature of the job or, you know, collateral damage of, of the job. And, and I realize that I do this day in, day out, and it's very comfortable for me to talk about. Uh, and so sometimes I have to remember, uh, and, and, uh, put myself back into kind of the beginning phases of this, where it was still uncomfortable for me, because it is a very sensitive, very difficult, uh, topic to address. And, I respect where people are at when it's, it's embarrassing or uncomfortable, or it's a private thing and it may not be embarrassing or uncomfortable, but it's something that they want to keep private. Um, and that's important. And so I, I always encourage it to become less taboo 
uh, within your, within your own, what you feel is right. Uh, but I will tell you, um, I don't know if I'd be where I am today. Um, now you're going to get me emotional here. Um, if my wife wasn't as encouraging all the way around, um, when I was scared to, I remember the first time I, I uh, released uh, my blog post on, on this topic uh, about two years ago now. And I remember shaking and her encouragement. Um, and why was I shaking? Uh, I knew what I was writing was clear and meant to be communicated. I didn't doubt that at all. Um, I'm also a very private person. Uh, people don't realize that because I'm so uh, public on social media. And the only reason why I'm public and I even share my personal life on social media is, and, and I don't like to, um, is because I feel, you know, you talk about, am I called to this? That's one thing I feel uh, is important in this whole message is that people have someone to see um, that's struggling through it. And my wife, I was very concerned that people would see me as some do um, this ultra liberal um, Mormon who's walking the fringes of its religion, which is just so baffling to me because uh, I think anybody who knows me uh, would probably, if they met me in person, would, would refer to me as uh, what do they call him? A, a TBM, a true believing Mormon, or that's uh, usually a, a said negatively, but, um, I see myself as, is one of those very strong. I would never, although I have had doubts about aspects of, of our faith, I have never doubted my faith in God and where I'm at. Um, I don't always understand it, but that day I released that blog post, I was shaking. And because of my wife's willingness to back me, and to support me. It made that process possible. I could tell you uh, pretty confidently if I didn't feel like she was supporting of my message, it probably would have never happened and I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, you know, she's not, she's not writing articles about this. Her name isn't on stuff. She's helped me edit a lot of stuff because I'm a horrible, horrible writer. Um, but she has never backed away from the message. And it's because of her that I think so many people are helped. Uh, you know, when I come home, I never talk about my clients at home, uh, but I do, uh, you know, sometimes review uh, within the context of her faith, how something could be addressed better, um, especially around these issues. And she's always engaged those conversations with me and um, helped me work through uh, where, where I feel like maybe, maybe I don't understand this aspect of the faith or how does this work within the context of our faith? Can it work? Um, she's been that sounding board and a life changer. And, you know, we don't have to put our name out there, I guess, but find ways to support this. One of the biggest, I think, hurdles to this is the silence around sexuality. Um, we are very, very private about it. And that's not helping. 
I want to respect people's privacy. Um, but if we don't talk about it, if we don't provide examples, even the messy examples, how will we ever break this cycle? How will we ever, um, get our, our, our minds around, uh, what it looks like to self master on a daily basis. Uh, we often talk about, it's similar to saying (laughs) marriage and, and sexual health is, is I, I sometimes compare it. You need to go out there and swim laps like Michael Phelps. And that's how we often frame it in, in our church manuals is it's divine. It's, it's going to bring joy and fulfillment into your marriage and it will, but that's like saying swim laps like Michael Phelps. What do you do to get there? And we don't, we don't communicate those steps very well. We don't use examples of this is where I was at. This is what sex is like. This is what I struggled with. This is good in marriage. This is between you and the Lord, and this is what I do, and this is what this couple does. That's not good. That's not not for us, but that works for them. And and communicating that message of including the Lord um, in their sexuality and what it looks like on a daily basis. And so, yes, I understand the privacy, but also if we're going to change, you got to start talking about it. Thank you, and thank your wife. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.